Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Ido Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman, and you're listening to World Review, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Andreas Kubilius, a former Prime Minister of Lithuania and a member for the European Parliament for the Conservative EPP Group, about his experience growing up under Soviet rule, how to plan for a Russia after Vladimir Putin, and how the war in Ukraine could weaken the Russian regime. If we can start off with, with this article that you wrote for, for the Lithuanian Tribune, you wrote a very detailed piece about, I, I suppose, prompted by the closure of the TV channel Dojt by Latvia, but I think more more broadly, you, you were speaking about psychological complexes in Baltics and perhaps in, in some Western countries, and I suppose a, a kind of psychological siloing of beliefs about Russia, prompted, of course, by the war. Could you just speak about your article and why you decided to write this piece? I would say several reasons. First of all, really, no, even earlier, we were discussing back in Brussels and we wrote one, one piece in you know, an op-ed with Radek Sikorsky with us, members of European Parliament and some experts on what we called on believers and non-believers in Russian democracy. And our feeling was, we do not have any kind of sociological estimation, but our feeling was that the majority in Europe are among non-believers, which is for us, it's not good. Because there are several reasons why we think that we need to believe in the possibility of Russian democracy and that we need to help Russian Democrats to achieve that goal, which we see doors are opening for some kind of new possibilities with Ukrainian victory against Russia and uh, possibilities of the transformation of Russia. It can go both ways. It can go in a wrong way with, I don't know, Prigozhin or Kadyrov coming into the power. Or it can go into that way that Russia is transforming itself into more normal in a European-type country. And that is our dream and our ambition, to have Russia as a normal neighbor. 
which for us in Lithuania, of course, that is very much important for our security reasons. What we believe is historical truth that democracies are not fighting each other. So that's our very clear reason. And in order to achieve that goal, to help Russia in democratic transformation, first of all, we need Europeans. We need to believe also that Russia can be, you know, can transform itself. Of course, that job will be done by Russian Democrats, but we can help. Second reason, again, very clear, that if in European capitals, you know, leaders would not believe in the possibility of Russian transformation after Putin will lose the war, and if they will be afraid of what can come after, if they will think that really Prigozhin or Kadyrov will come after Putin, and there is no chance for democracy to be established in, in, in Russia, then what we are afraid is that support to Ukraine with weapons, you know, will be not on that level which we would like to see. That the West would help Ukraine with such an amount of weapons, which would allow Ukraine to win a decisive victory. So if the Western capitals, at least some of them, would not believe into scenario for Russia, if they will be afraid of turmoil in Russia, chaos in Russia, total collapse of Russia with all their nuclear weapons, uh, which will lose the control, then we are afraid that this uh, support to Ukraine will not be on that level which we would like to see. So those are two reasons why we are talking about possibility in Russia to have democracy and what the West needs to do. Now I looked, and of course this Dosh story, it triggered it again, some kind of discussions, also, especially in our country now, which uh, you can hear the same ones also in, in Brussels or in all Europe that Russia is not able to be a democracy, that Russians are not. They do not have this democratic, democratic mentality and so on and so on. And I simply went through all those, what I call in some ways, psychological problems on our side, that we are, we are very easy going into some kind of superficial understanding of what is happening in Russia. It's much more complex things and we need to look into more detail into, and I was trying to put all the answers to all those most most popular, what they call psychological complexes on our psychological narratives on our side. I think one of the reasons that people are so willing to say that maybe this is a war of, it's not Putin's war, it's Russian's war and the Russians are acquiescing to it is that there really isn't very much grassroots and popular opposition to the war in Russia. The opposition has been crushed. Pretty much everyone is in exile and the few prominent figures who have left are imprisoned. And there aren't mass rallies against the war. There were for some period, but not anymore. And you have a particularly interesting perspective, I think, because you obviously grew up during the Soviet occupation of Lithuania. And you talk in the piece about how even Lithuanians didn't dare to hold mass rallies against the Soviet Union, against Soviet rule, until Perestroika, until Trotsky's rule. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of your experience of um, growing up under an authoritarian or totalitarian system and what it's actually like to, to, to oppose such a government. You can hear in Lithuania even. All that Russian opposition, they are doing nothing. They should go back to Russia. They should take guns and they should fight against Putin regime and so on. Which uh, for me, really, it does not look very, how to say, very rational and very sincere from our side. This is what I call sofa revolutionaries, that we are sitting on our nice sofas, drinking champagne and giving advice to those guys who are really persecuted by Russian regime. My point was very simple. If you look into our history, when we are saying to Russians that take guns and go, you know, to fight against Putin, 
it seems that we are saying also that we would fight. In your place, we would take, we would go, we would fight and so on. Because we are the heroes. We, we managed to achieve our democracy. We managed to achieve our, you know, independence. And that is why we can teach how to fight. So it's not a very objective approach. Because if you look into our history, yes, we are, after Second World War, we have, you know, underground military resistance with Forest Brothers until 1953. Then we had, you know, some dissidents. We had some manifestations, you know, when one guy back in 1972, he burned himself in Kaunas protesting against the Soviet regime. But those were some way separate individual occasions. In general, during Brezhnev time, there was no big, you know, public, you know, opposition to Brezhnev regime. Young Lithuanians were mobilized to Soviet armies. They were sent to Afghanistan or to Czechoslovakia to occupy, and nobody was protesting. And all the protests came out only when Gorbachev started perestroika. And when we learned that with Gorbachev, and people who are going into demonstrations will not be sent to prison, to Gulag or, or whatever. So all our bravery in some way was connected with Gorbachev. So... Now in Russia, they do not have Gorbachev. They have no Putin. And to teach people go and fight when everybody knows that you will be sent to prison or you will be poisoned and so on, this is not for us to teach. We do not have such a bravery in our history, in our experience, which we can teach Russians. Go and fight. Because when we had similar situation with Brezhnev regime, we were not so brave. And that was very simple human reason. Nobody wanted to go to, to, to jail or to be sent to, you know, this uh, psychiatric hospital or to be sent to Gulag or to lose its professional possibilities and so on. So that's my, my, my point was, let's not be those salon revolutionaries. Let's not teach from our sofas, you know, Russians how to fight. Because in their place, if we would be in their place, perhaps that we would behave in a very similar way. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host The New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How should we thinking about trying to think about why there are these dynamics in Russia also leads us to thinking about a Russia after Putin, a de-Putinized Russia, a Russia that as you said, is always going to be on the border with Lithuania, that is always going to be on the border with the European Union, is always going to be on the border with Ukraine. And of course, we have to think about how we can live with Russia, how maybe we can help Russia change from, of course, the, the country that it is today and the regime that rules Russia today. How do you think about this? How should we think and plan for a Russia after Putin, for a better democratic Russia? I would say here are two two stages if you look into you know, future developments. The first one is really how to help because the biggest instrument now which can open the doors for changes in Russia is, of course, Ukrainian victory. So the question is how to support Ukraine, and that is what really very much depends on the Western political will. Because and it was during this year or during, let's say, not this year, but from the very beginning of the war, Ukrainians managed to show that with the Western military equipment and with their bravery, they are much stronger than Russian military forces. And uh, everything, when the war can be finished, everything depends on, on, on military equipment, which the West can, can deliver to Ukraine. But in order to have to stronger military deliveries, again, we need to convince the West that after Putin, after Russia will lose a war, there are possibilities for positive scenarios. And that is why we need to start to work now even also on those positive scenarios. There are several options which we need to target at the same time. We need to, at least I am believing into some kind of historical tendencies of development. I see that democracy slowly, but is moving into the eastern part of the European continent, including Belarus, including Russia. So we need to look how we can help you know, that spread to go on. And here again, besides Ukrainian victory, it's very important what the West can do and what you can do. It's really to create an example of success of Ukraine, not only with military victory and not only with reconstruction after the war, but also with integration towards EU, with modernization of Ukrainian economy. And that can be an inspiration for Russian people to see that really there is a possibility to have a, a decent, normal life 
in, in this part of Europe, if you are abandoning totally stupid dreams about restoration of empire, and if you are moving into some kind of normalization of your country, and you are creating normal, normal conditions for your country. Then second, what we need to do and what we are trying to do, we need to start to work with Russian opposition, with their intellectuals, with liberal intellectuals, starting to prepare yeah. and starting to speak loudly what kind of relationship we are going to establish in between of EU, for example, and democratic Russia. What are we going to offer? No, perhaps no, if for Ukraine we can offer membership in EU, I am not thinking that we can offer Russia, you know membership in EU. It's a little bit too big a uh, challenge. But to offer, for example, free trade, visa-free, things like that, to show ordinary Russian people that we are ready to work together with democratic Russian authorities in order to provide all the possibilities to create normal conditions of life in Russia. That is what we can try to do. And that is very important, to send messages even now to Russian people that look after Putin or in post-Putin Russia, there is possibility to have a normal life. And that is what the West is ready to deliver. And such kind of reality to work with democratic Russia would be very important after the change, which I hope will come into Russia and with positive consequences, because when democracy is coming, there are two major challenges, at least what we learned also in, in, from our history. One challenge is really how to make that change during one night. There are different scenarios, how democracy can come into Russia or in other countries. But usually we are concentrating ourselves all only on that change. And we are forgetting that young democracy in such countries, especially like Russia, they are facing big challenges to stabilize themselves. Because a lot of different emotions are starting to appear in society, a lot of nostalgia to the past. Democracy usually brings a lot of big reforms, which are not very popular and so on. And that is what had happened with Russia back in Yeltsin time. Democracy failed because people were really upset with all the changes. They have the possibility to see the benefits of that coming and a lot of nostalgia to the you know, Soviet Union, to Soviet past. That was what Putin was very good in, in using that. And that is what we have now. So we need to learn also lessons that just our relations, our strategy towards democratic Russia and how to democracy in Russia to be stabilized will be very important also. I think... Listening to these arguments, I think I can see the, I can see the logic behind them, but it, it seems so far removed from the situation we are at the moment, talking about visa-free travel for Russians to, to the EU. This seems so fantastical that given the situation we are at the moment, do, how are you making, do you think it's possible to convince Europeans, to convince even Russians that these, that we, we should aim for closer relations, we should aim for friendly relations? Because at the moment, obviously, the relations are the worst they've been in post-war history, pretty much. I would say there is one very important point. When I am talking about those friendly relations, like visa free or free trade, we are talking about totally different Russia. Democratic Russia, after the change, not friendly relations with Putin regime. So that's one most important condition. And for us, it will be very important, really, to understand if after the change, Russia is really becoming a democracy. It will not be enough for just to have some kind of election, because, you know, elections can bring Prigozhin into power. You know, that's very simple. So that's why we put one, one paper together with Russian intellectual leaders, uh, like Sergei Guriev from now from Paris, and Vladimir Milo from Navalny team, and also with some European experts. 
we put a piece exactly on on this on EU strategy of relation with democratic Russia, where we have said exactly that this is very important for us to start to know to discuss. We elaborated exactly how we shall recognize if Russia is really de- becoming democracy or not. The first condition will be really abandoning of all the aggressive policies towards the neighbors. So that's what we we started to discuss. We are now trying to broaden our discussion, and we hope that we can involve also in a more formal way EU institutions to to prepare some kind of strategy. And of course, for time being, when you see Russia, when you see all those atrocities, you know what the Russian army is perpetrating in Bucha or other places. To speak about much more friendly relations with Russia, of course, we are talking about different Russia, but. People are quite difficult to, to convince them that it can come. People are evaluating the situation more based on their emotions. And when people see what's done, what kind of crimes were done in Ukraine, of course, there is very little space for rational evaluation. But that is our task. And, and in Russia, in our region, things can change very rapidly. Now, when you are not believing that can, can happen, for example, what had happened with uh, Gorbachev perestroika. Before that perestroika, nobody was believing that things can go in such a way. You know, it looked like that the Soviet Union has a drop of all those old guys and that it will continue in such a way. And suddenly from somewhere, okay, that was deliberate you know, action to, to start reforms of Soviet Union. Even Andropov was looking into that. Nobody was thinking that the reforms can bring the outcomes that Soviet Union will pull out. Or let's say another example, a recent example, Belarus and Lukashenko. In 2020, despite the fact that we are neighbors with Belarus, and we had a lot of relationship with Belarus in spring, in the first half of 2020, we were not foreseeing any kind of those events which started to happen with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and also those big, you know, street protests and so on. Things can come and change in a very rapid way. Okay, Lukashenko managed to stop with guns, you know, all that revolution in Belarus, but, you know, First of all, I see it as an evidence that when we see, and it looks like that nothing can happen in, in, in Russia or in Belarus at all, so things can go in a very different way, in a very rapid way. So we don't know when it can happen, what can, you know, how it can go, but let's be ready for a totally different scenario. So Putin and Lukashenko's power is a lot more fragile than maybe people think, and we need to be ready to respond when it collapses. Absolutely. And I think that Putin, you know why? I am trying to ask myself the question. So why Putin decided to go into that stupid war, criminal and so on, but which is threatening his regime? And I think that somebody is saying, okay, Putin was feeling that he is very strong, that he can take TF during three days and so on. In my view, really Putin decided to go to the war because he was starting to feel that his regime is becoming weaker and weaker. And especially in Belarusian example, for him was really a clear signal, a red light to that. Things can go into very, very in, in that way, which will destabilize his regime. And that is why he decided, let's go and let's start this war. Let's show the people some kind of other issues and so on. Andrus Kubilius, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage at newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ido Vogt. Thanks for listening and until next time.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.